Welcome to Spirit in Action. My name is Mark Helpsmeet, and each week we bring you visits and conversations with people doing healing work for this world, hearing what they're doing and what inspires them and supports them in doing it. Welcome to Spirit in Action. We have a wonderful guest here today for Spirit in Action, one that you'll learn from, I'm sure, but even more so, she will delight you and you'll surely wish she was your personal friend. Sumbul Ali Karamali grew up as one of the few Muslims in her area of Southern California, so she ended up educating many people personally about her religion. Her ability to explain and communicate only grew with her English degree from Stanford and her American law degree from UC Davis. She ended up adding to the breadth and depth of her knowledge with a degree in Islamic law from the University of London's School of Oriental and African Studies. Because of the burgeoning efforts by Islamophobic forces to misrepresent Islamic religion and culture, she's felt called to write three books. In 2008, she wrote The Muslim Next Door, The Quran, The Media, and That Veil Thing. In 2012, she wrote Growing Up Muslim, and this past year, she wrote Demystifying Sharia, What It Is, How It Works, and Why It's Not Taking Over Our Country. Her writing is easily accessible and rich for the curious and the compassionate. Sumbul Ali Karamali joins us today via Zoom from California. Sumbul, thank you so very, very much for joining me today for Spirit in Action. I am honored to be here. Thank you. You were a corporate lawyer to start off. Actually, I don't even know if that's first. I think you were an English major or something originally. <laughs> Yeah, I actually grew up in Southern California, just south of Los Angeles. And I actually grew up at a time where there weren't that many Muslims and even not that many Indians in the country. My dad came here from India to do his PhD in math. He was one of the very few Indians, I think only 17,000 in the country at that time. So as I was growing up, I was kind of an oddity. I was the first Muslim that most people I knew had ever come across. I was the only Muslim that a lot of my friends knew. And so I got a lot of questions and you don't really talk about religion on the playground, right? <laughs> but it would come up when, for example, if I went to a birthday party and they had pepperoni pizza, and then I'd have to say, well, I can't eat the pepperoni because it's pork and I can't eat the pork because I'm Muslim. And that's sort of how it would come up. As I got older and I started fasting for Ramadan and, um, you know, my parents' interpretation was that I couldn't go out on dates and I, you know, had to pray five times a day. It came up more because I would, you know, go to school hungry and not being able to eat. Actually, I remember, <laughs> I remember one time I went to school fasting. So that means that I couldn't have food or water until sunset. And I got to school only to learn that that was the day we were going to run the mile for the presidential physical fitness test. And I think they still run the mile. But I thought, oh, my goodness, what am I going to do? I can tell the coach that I'm fasting and I can't run, but he's never heard of Muslims. He doesn't know any other Muslims. He's going to think I'm just making up excuses. Or I can just suck it up and run. So, uh, of course, I, I ran. And um, I was telling this story to a classroom of 12-year-olds. And one of the 12-year-olds raised his hand and he said, what was your time? <laughs> but I didn't pass out. And that was an accomplishment as far as I was concerned. But that's how it would generally come up. But then when I went off to college, I went to Stanford. And I was in the dorm. And all of a sudden, I 
it was like an interfaith 101 experience because everybody knows what everybody's doing in the dorms. And um, I was thinking, how am I going to pray five times a day when my roommate lives a foot away from me? I don't want her to notice. You know, how am I going to figure out if there's pork in the dorm food? Because nobody knew what was in the dorm food at Stanford at that time. <laughs> so it was, and of course, I didn't drink and a lot of people drank in college. So I was constantly explaining myself. And then I went to law school and increasingly Islam was in the news. This was after the Iranian revolution now. And increasingly over the last 20, 30 years, Islam has been in the news. And so I started getting questions and I started getting requests for book recommendations on Islam. And I thought there aren't any, you know, there were textbooks, there was the occasional Sufi volume of poetry, but there were no books that actually answered the questions that I had been asked all my life. So when my husband's job took us to London, I did an LLM, which is a legal specialization degree. Um, I did it in Islamic law. Then I came back and I started writing books. So that's kind of how I came to do what I'm doing. And I'm interviewing you right now, which is during Ramadan, right? So I mistakenly said that before we started that if you need to take a drink of water while we're doing this, you could. And just last Tuesday, I was playing basketball with one of my friends, my uh, Muslim friend here in town, who is only eight inches taller than I am. But, <laughs> and he still won almost all the games, <laughs> even though he has the disadvantage of the, he's not being able to drink or eat, of course. And so your mile run when you're fasting, I know exactly what you're talking about. I was amazed in recent years, the Olympics have fallen during Ramadan. And I was amazed that some of the athletes were fasting while they were in the Olympics. Well, what Ahmed told me, he said that because of the fasting, there's kind of a super energy you get of sorts. It, it isn't as much a depletion as he thought. Now, I'm not saying <laughs> that you had to do that during your mile run, but... <laughs> I have to say, if he has extra energy, kudos to him, because I just feel flattened when I'm, when I'm fasting. <laughs> It is, I feel so tired and, and it's hard, you know, it's hard to be as sharp, but people do what they have to do. I remember going to school and this was in high school. I still remember I went to school and they showed a movie in my health class about what you shouldn't eat, like donuts and ice cream. And they're showing all these pictures of food. And here I was starving <laughs> because I was fasting. But, you know, I find fasting hard, Mark, but I'm always happy that I'm required to do it. Because it's amazing how quickly we forget what it's like for people who don't have food or water when they feel like it. And I've often thought that everybody should fast three days in a row out of the year. Maybe not the whole 30 days like Muslims do. But I've often thought that everyone needs to fast for three days because there's nothing that so viscerally brings home the understanding of what it's like to starve as actually not being able to go to the fridge whenever you need something to eat. A friend of mine said to, she's not Muslim and she was saying that she was skeptical when I said this. It's like, oh no, I know what people, I know there are people who are starving. I don't need to fast in order to understand this. But she came back to me once and she said, you know, I couldn't eat or drink because I was having a medical procedure. And I was amazed how often I had to stop myself from going to the refrigerator or from getting a drink of water. And she said, now I know what you mean. And so I, I'm not encouraging people from a religious point of view, but just from a empathy and compassion point of view, I think everybody should fast. 
And compassion is a very good word to use when we're talking about the merciful religion, Islam, right? Building compassion is a real important religious principle. A lot of people don't understand that because we have such a skewed and Islamophobic point of view in this country, the news we've been fed. And I take exactly your point about building compassion. As a matter of fact, there's a friend of mine, a a Quaker connection who's over in Pasadena. What he decided to do in order to build compassion connection is he decided to observe Ramadan in exactly the same way. So he did full Ramadan along with our neighbors. He's Quaker, but of course, we have to walk in another person's shoes in order to understand their situation. Wow, that's wonderful. I totally believe that. I completely believe that. And you're right. It's, you know, I write about Muslims and Islam, and sometimes I do feel like it's, I'm swimming upstream because we are so conditioned in this country, and Europe, Europeans are as well, we're so conditioned to believe the worst of Muslims. And it comes, like you said, from our media, but it also comes from our television, from our movies, from our social studies textbooks. I did a, a talk on studies textbooks middle school social studies textbooks. And, you know, the one that my daughter had, (laughs) it only had two pictures of Muslims in the whole chapter on Islam. And one was a Bedouin Arab sitting in the sand barefoot in front of a bonfire. And the other one was a very dirty, tattered kind of market with all the women in black burqas. And reading this chapter and looking at the pictures, you would never know that Muslims lived in buildings. It was was unbelievable. I thought if you only had two pictures, why didn't you have the Muslim woman president of Indonesia, for example? So there's a definite conditioning that happens in our country. It's actually something that is not new. There is a long historical tradition in the West of seeing Islam through the lens of the enemy. And this makes sense because... All religions think of religions that come after them as cults or false religions. Jews consider Christianity to be a false religion. Christians consider Islam to be a false religion. Muslims consider the Baha'i to be a false religion. This this happens with everybody. And so when Islam was born in the 7th century, Muslims accepted Judaism and Christianity as part of Islam. And Muhammad had Christian relatives. He had Jewish colleagues in the area. But Christians in the 7th century didn't know anything about Islam. In in Europe, anyway, Christian Europeans didn't know anything about Islam. They considered it a false religion. Of course, then they considered Muhammad to be the Antichrist, Satan. My favorite story is how they considered him to be an exiled Catholic bishop who ran away to start his own religion in the Middle East. (laughs) Oh, oh, there's actually even a better one. They considered him an African witch doctor who had magically coerced people into following him. So there's this whole body of mythology that grew up, that grew up around Islam and Muslims in the Christian European psyche. And it's totally normal, right? I mean, if we knew there were people on Mars, but we didn't know anything about them, we may very well invent all kinds of things about them in order to explain our perceptions of them. And that's what happened in Europe starting in the 7th, 8th, ninth centuries. And new tall tales just grew up around the old tall tales. So, And there was very little contact. Often there was only contact on the battlefield. So Muslims were often perceived as having blue or purple or black skin. You know, we were considered to be monsters. Eventually, when there was contact, it was in the context of colonization. Up to almost 90% of the Muslim world was colonized by European powers. And so that, of course, was also not a congenial contact. 
So this tradition that we have in the West of viewing Islam and Muslims as the enemy has survived for 1400 years. And what we see now, all the stereotypes in the media, in the in our entertainment, our historical narratives, our literature, is just a function of that same lens of looking at Muslims as the enemy. I come across stereotypes all kinds of places, Mark, like even cookbooks sometimes. Um, I, I'll read an introduction to a cookbook and there'll be stereotypes about Muslims. And so I've started reading science fiction and self-defense. We're speaking today to Sumbu Ali Karamali. The book that she just released this past year is Demystifying Sharia, what it is, how it works, and why it's not taking over our country. I think we need to delve into some of the details of this. We could easily spend much more than the 55 minutes of this program talking about Islamophobia and what the reality of Islam is versus what our media is painting it as. And you do talk about some of that in the book. But what I found immensely interesting is this different idea of law that comes from a different basis. Now, I, I say a different basis, but I just finished reading the book yesterday. Oh, thank you. And I know it's kind of weird that someone who's interviewing you actually reads the book. You know, <laughs> I have to admit that there's some things that are still hazy in my mind because they're so foreign. So when I learned about FIC, there's case law in the United States. You're a lawyer yourself, right? So when Sumbul went to law school, here's how it's structured. Then you go over to England and you have to learn how this other thing, and I assume you didn't know much of the whole Sharia, how it's structured. You knew some tenets of it. You knew parts of it, right? But how it's structured, did you know that before you went? To- oh, no, no. In fact, I don't think I even knew the word Sharia until I got a degree in Islamic law. You know, I grew up Muslim in a pretty devout family, but I don't think any of my friends knew, any of my Muslim friends knew this word Sharia either, because it's an academic term. It's, you know, Muslim kids grow up with very, I mean, in your family, you grow up with kind of basic ideas, right? Don't lie, don't cheat, don't steal, you know, pray five times a day. You know, if you're Muslim, obviously pray five times a day. Here's how you fast, do your homework, be respectful to your parents. That was what I remember of having a religious education. And, you know, remember, you know, reading the Quran, learning to read Arabic. So words like jihad and Sharia, they were introduced to most Muslims by Americans, by the American public discourse. We didn't grow up talking about those things. We grew up talking about personal conduct. Like, what does Islam say about personal conduct? Don't eat pork. Don't drink alcohol. Is it okay to eat shellfish? You know, these kinds of questions. Is it okay to have vanilla extract in your cookies because vanilla has a little bit of alcohol in it? So those are the questions that we grappled with. And Sharia was something that I learned when I did my degree. And even then, Mark, even when I wrote my first book, it came out in 2008, I barely spent two paragraphs on Sharia because nobody was talking about it. Loosely, Sharia just means Islam. So if I'm writing a book on Islam, why would I talk about Sharia as a different thing? So it, it just wasn't, in a way, it wasn't relevant and it wasn't in the public discourse it wasn't what everyday Muslims thought about. Since you read the book, you know that there's a reason that it came onto the scene and it was it was not an accident. What happened in 2012? So in, 20, in 2008, my book came out, nothing about Sharia, right? Nobody knows anything about it. Two years later, in 2010, a right-wing lawyer named David Yerushalmi, who is part of the loose Islamophobia network in this country, which makes a lot of money by disseminating fear and misinformation about Muslims, 
Yerushalmi decided that he wanted to introduce the idea of a scary Islamic law taking over the country. And he called it Sharia law, which is a total misnomer. Nobody calls it Sharia law. It's Sharia is, is a word, but not Sharia law. But he wanted to introduce this idea, the scary idea. And so he went to state legislatures and said, you have to enact anti-Sharia legislation or Sharia will take over the United States. He's a lawyer. He knows perfectly well that no religion can take over the United States because of our Constitution. The First Amendment to our Constitution prevents any religious law from taking over the United States. But that wasn't his goal. His goal was just to get people riled up about this idea. And he was wildly successful. To date, 14 states have enacted anti-Sharia legislation. It's a total waste of time because we don't need it. It's pointless. And all it does, it otherizes Muslims and portrays them as unable to comply with American law because they have to comply with Sharia, or it reiterates this attitude that's even in our government with some government officials that Sharia is taking over the United States. There's no evidence of it. No Muslim American organization has ever tried to, <laughs> to, to advocate the Sharia taking over the United States. So that's that's how it became a scare word. And for Muslims, including me, then we were sort of left hurriedly trying to catch up, you know, trying to say, oh, no, no, that's not what Sharia is. <laughs> then it's an uphill battle. It's a horrible uphill battle because, as you said, the Islamophobia industry, the network of people, they're very focused and they organize well. And they know how to use the leverage, the propaganda. So you end up defining a word which essentially means the path to the watering place, right? You know, that's what sure is. Yeah, that's right. So the path to the water place, watering place becomes a, a threat to all of our uh, American, the American way, whatever that is. Yes. As if we weren't already a, a land of immigrants. Yes, I think that is forgotten sometimes. You know, one of my favorite authors is Terry Pratchett. <laughs> and one of the things that I quote from him, he says, a lie can run around the world before the truth has got its boots on. Mm -hmm. But yes, you're right. I mean, Sharia means the road to the watering place. And in religious terms, it means the righteous path. It's the path of righteousness, the path that we want to follow in order to be good people. It's the path of God. That's what it means. And you can learn a lot more detail about that by reading Demystifying Sharia by Sumbul Ali Karamali. But I want to outline some of the detail in the book. There's vast amounts we're going to have to gloss over. Mm -hmm. But the item that was the most difficult for me to wrap my mind around was the fact that it's not a top-down type of law. We're used to in the United States... I mean, you've got the Constitution, Congress passes a law, the states pass a law, and it's all got a hierarchy, and it's all definitive, and here it is in code. But that is not the way Sharia works. It starts from something that is written. Mm -hmm. We've got the Quran, and then there's also the written down sayings of the Prophet. So you've got the Hadith, yes. which was the Sunnah, was the verbal thing that was passed on. And so that's the starting place. That's the base. I, that's the way I conceive of it. Correct me if I've said it badly. No, that's okay. So Islam, for people who don't know, in the seventh century, basically, is when Islam was born. It was around the year 610 that a man named Muhammad in what is now Saudi Arabia began to hear what Muslims consider are the words of God spoken to the angel Gabriel, and then spoken to the prophet Muhammad, who recited them out loud. His followers wrote them down, and these writings were compiled 
within 20 years of Muhammad's death into a book called the Quran. So the Quran is the Muslim holy book that is considered divine by Muslims. Also, the words and deeds of the Prophet Muhammad are considered divine, and that's called the Sunnah, as you said. For early Muslims, if they had questions about what to do, they just asked the Prophet. But when the Prophet died, they thought, okay, now what do we do? So they looked at the Quran, and they looked at the words and deeds of the Prophet as they had recorded them. But sometimes they still didn't quite find the answers they were looking for. If I'm looking at the Quran and the words and deeds of the Prophet, and I'm trying to figure out, should I let my daughter go to the prom? I won't really find that answer in them, right? <laughs> so the early Muslims, in order to find out, well, what's the way of God? What is Sharia? What is the path of God? They looked to the Quran, they looked to the Sunnah, and then they started interpreting those texts in order to come up with more religious guidelines. And they filled books and books and books of these interpretations of the religious texts. And this whole body of interpretive literature is called the fiqh, as you said. Now, the fiqh is not a black and white law, which is how Sharia is sometimes portrayed. It's not rigid rules. It is a mass of arguments and debates and opinions and majority opinions and minority opinions, all trying to guess what the way of God is, you know, all trying to guess what is Sharia, that, how do we behave in accordance with Sharia. And the fiqh is not set in stone either. It was always meant to evolve. Fiqh is still evolving. One of my professors said that it is unique in human legal history because it is the longest continuing legal system in the world. Legal meaning that there are still people interpreting the religious texts and using the methodology in order to come up with new guidelines. So this idea that Islam is frozen in the seventh century is not correct. And also that it is black and white and yes and no is also not correct. Now, what's confusing is that Sharia doesn't have a fixed meaning. It means the road to the watering place. It means the way of God, you know, that's the path of righteousness. But sometimes it also refers to the whole legal tradition in Islam. So it refers to the Quran plus the Sunnah plus the fiqh, the interpretive writings. But that is really just Islam. That's the greater part of Islam. So that's why I said loosely Sharia just means Islam. It is ironic that it's portrayed as a black and white draconian law when two of the hallmarks of the Sharia-based legal system were that it was flexible and adaptable. I think that the thing that for me was the most difficult to put into place is because I am used to living in a country where there's the Supreme Court coming on down, there's the president coming on down. I grew up Catholic. There's the Pope and the cardinals and everything. It's a top-down system. Whereas Islam grew out of a horizontally spread set of scholars and experts, devoted people who are putting it together. And it isn't simply that the dictator gets to say or the president gets to say. It's a bottom-up system, as I see it. Yeah, it is difficult to think about. But you're right. The first thing to understand is that in Islamic history, for about a thousand years, at least before colonialism, in Islamic history, those that governed were separate from those that developed the religious law. The religious scholars developed the religious law, and often they were at odds with the ruler. The ruler had to get the approval of the religious scholars. They operated as checks and balances. The ruler checked the religious scholars if they got out of hand, and the religious scholars checked the ruler because they approved or disapproved him, gave him legitimacy. So the way the religious law was developed is by religious scholars on the ground. We'll call them muftis. There are lots of words for them. But so if I were a Muslim living in the 7th or 8th or 9th or 10th centuries, and I had a question, like, for example, can I divorce my husband? I would go to my local mufti 
the local mufti sometimes was a woman, by the way, as well. There were women muftis even in early Islam. First, they would look at their religious texts. They would see if there was any kind of consensus on this question. They would see if other people had written opinions on the matter. And they would look at the circumstances that I was in. They would look at my personal circumstances, the geography, the whether there was hardship involved, whether there was any customary factors involved. And then the mufti would come up with an opinion. And it was a non-binding legal opinion. If I didn't like it, I could go to another mufti and go through the same process, and they might come up with a different opinion. The interesting thing about Islam is that all of the muftis' opinions were considered valid. So the muftis would give this opinion, which was called a fatwa, and at the end they would say, and God knows best. And that meant that, I think I'm right, but God knows best, that other guy might be right. So even though they argued, they accepted each, as long as the methodology was secure and accepted, they considered every other mufti's opinion to be valid. And so if two people had a dispute and they went to a mufti to solve their dispute, the mufti would give them an opinion. Now, suppose one of them didn't abide by the opinion, then the other guy could take him to court. There, the judge would look at the mufti's opinion. The judge might look at other mufti's opinions and come up with a decision. That's how it really started on the ground with people asking questions and the religious scholars giving answers and then recording them in these treatises and these books. The judge was kind of between the scholars and the ruler, you know, often was appointed by the ruler, but the judge would look not to the law by the ruler, the judge wouldn't look to previous cases, but instead would look at the opinions of the muftis. So in that respect, it was a bottom up kind of a system. And what was unique about it was you could have lots of different legal outcomes on the same set of facts. So what we're used to in our world is, like you said, it's a top-down system where Congress makes laws, the courts, by interpreting the cases, make laws. And there's usually only one law. There are not a lot of different laws. In the Islamic system, there's almost no one answer to any question. Like, like what is the Sharia? <laughs> I mean, if you say, what does the Sharia say? There's usually not one answer because there were lots of different legal outcomes that were considered perfectly valid. For example, in the Ottoman Empire, if a woman wanted a, a divorce, she could sort of pick from any of the different schools of legal thought and choose the one that was most advantageous. And that is totally mind-blowing to people from the U.S., that means that they're essentially, uh, one way of thinking of it is there is no law because you can always choose which law you want to apply, right? Yeah. And what you just said about divorce. So can I get divorced? Can I not get divorced? Well, he says, yes, I'll go to that one. Yeah. <laughs> I'm sure there's a lot of people who've broken laws here in the United States who wish they could choose their judge in that same way. <laughs> Now, you mentioned the muftis, the scholars, the educated people, the people who studied and produced the fiqh. They evidently were not judges themselves, but judges, the, the qadis, I think is the name. Yeah. Is that person, does that person need to be a mufti? And so is, is it one of the muftis who gets appointed by someone, uh, maybe a temporal law person, a, a person who appoints the mufti to be a qadi, to be a judge? Is that how it works? Yeah. Sometimes the qadis were judges, uh, sorry, sometimes the qadis were also muftis, but sometimes they were not. Okay. In the modern day, Sharia is not the law of the land anywhere in the world today. This I just have to say this clearly, because oftentimes people think that if it's a Muslim majority country, then it must be ruled by Sharia. It's not. I mean, most Muslim majority countries are, all of them really, are constitutional states. 
They have civil codes, often based on the French civil law system. Even Iran has a constitution and a civil code. And law comes from the top down, as you said. It's the government that makes the law. And Sharia was never meant to operate that way. We're visiting today for Spirit in Action with Sumbu Ali Karamali. The book that she just released this last year is Demystifying Sharia, What It Is, How It Works, and Why It's Not Taking Over Our Country. I'll give you a lot more detail about that, but I want to remind you that you are listening to Spirit in Action. Our website is northernspiritradio.org. And so when you want to get a hold of Sumbul, you can just type in muslimnextdoor.com or you can type in her name, sumbulalikaramali.com. Either one of those will get you to her website and you can follow up a lot more, including reading her two previous books. Her first book was The Muslim Next Door, The Quran, The Media, and That Veil Thing. And the second one was Growing Up Muslim, which was targeted for a younger audience, ages 10 and up, and it's very good for adults as well. Again, this is Spirit in Action, NordenSpiritRadio.org. Come to our site, comment on our programs, and we've got them going all the way back to 2005, many hundreds of people doing world healing work. Please support them, support us, and support the kind of radio stations, the community radio stations, which carry our programs. There's some 42 of them across the nation that are carrying our programs. And we really would love to see local, diverse thought being supported. And that's the kind of station you want to have doing that. So the massive chain radio stations are mostly owned by conservatives who are actually feeding the Islamophobia fears. So please remember to support your local community radio station. They're invaluable. And then remember to go to muslimnextdoor.com and learn more about Sumbul and her three books and her other work. Amongst other things, by the way, and I'll just take a side detour here because I think it is really important. You're a member of the steering committee for two different organizations. That's what I understand. Women in Islamic Spirituality and Equality. That's beautiful initials, WISE, the acronym, and the Muslim Women's Global Shura Council. And I'm not sure I know what Shura means, but they're promoting women's rights and human rights from an Islamic perspective. Let's take this massive detour. One of the misconceptions, as you explain in the book, Demystifying Sharia, about Islam is that it makes women second-class citizens at best, I guess I'd say that, in fact, if you consider it historically, it's been well ahead of its Christian and I think maybe even Jewish members of the Abrahamic faiths, that women's rights were advanced earlier in Islam than in Christianity or in the Jewish world. Explain a little bit about that, because so many people are completely ignorant of that history. I just have to say I'm not an expert in Christianity or Judaism. Well, then what good? Then we'll have to get someone else on. (laughs) (laughs) But I, I do. But you're right. It's very hard for people to believe when I say that Islam was feminist when it was born. Because we are, again, so conditioned by these images of women in burqas. And for the most part, the images that we see are very, very few women in the world. So I just have to tell you, Mark, I was speaking to a classroom of sixth graders and one little boy raised his hand and he said, I thought Muslim women were all covered up and couldn't go anywhere without their fathers or brothers or husbands and couldn't drive. So how did you get here? (laughs) (laughs) And of course, I said, my camel. I I took my camel. (laughs) (laughs) But, But really what he was 
I, I didn't say that, <laughs> but um, obviously in his mind, it was the Saudi woman who was in his mind because that is what is shown to us so much more than anybody else. So you have to remember that Saudi women are only 2% of the Muslim women in the world. That's a minuscule part. And yet that's continually put before our eyes. Like I said, in our social studies textbooks, what are the pictures? They're women in burqas. You know, we love to point fingers at other people, right? I mean, it's human nature to feel better about ourselves by pointing fingers at other groups. So it's a natural thing. Like we don't wear burqas in the U.S., so we show the otherness of Muslims by showing women in burqas. But I would say most women in the world don't even wear headscarves and less than 1% wear burqas. So it's not a representative picture that we see in front of us all the time. But Islam, one of the main themes of the Quran was to promote women's rights. Many historians and many Western historians have remarked that Islam and the Quran and Muhammad gave women more rights in the 7th century than English women would have until the late 19th century for over another thousand years. And that is a remarkable thing. In Islamic history, you know, women were muftis. Sometimes they were rulers in their own rights or as regents. They were owners of property. There was a, an institu- a charitable institution. You could give money for education, sort of give money for an endowment. And something like 40% of owners of these properties were women until the 19th century. Also, Islam gave women all kinds of rights that people didn't have. Other, other women in the world didn't have. For example, they could enter into their own contracts. They could get custody of their young children. And we're talking the seventh century. They could get a divorce. They could be judges, qadis, with certain limitations. And some schools of law said that they could be qadis with no limitations. This was a remarkable thing. And then also the Quran itself very often addresses women specifically. So instead of just saying you, as in the plural you, the Quran actually says you, men and women, you men and you women, essentially equalizing them. So there's a verse that says men should be modest and women should be modest and men should be devout and women should be devout, which is a strange construct, right? Like normally when you talk to someone, you just say you should be devout. But the Quran actually says men should do this and women should do this because it was equalizing them. Noah Feldman points out, he's a professor at Harvard, and he points out that when Western powers went to colonize Muslim lands, often the result of colonialism was to strip women of the rights that they had always had under Islam. So when the British went to India, you know, Muslim women could own property, married women could own property, they had legal personhood, they were legal people in their own rights, they could enter into contracts, whereas English women could not. And so the British went to you know, Muslim lands and pretty much stripped the women of their rights. Also, English women couldn't get divorces and Muslim women had been getting divorces for centuries, but then suddenly found it much harder under colonialism to access the courts. Colonialism was a disruption. You know, oftentimes people would look at me and say, oh, you must have kind of broken the shackles of Islam in order to be a corporate lawyer. It's funny because I've often... I always thought that Islam was the reason I became a corporate lawyer. I mean, my parents always talked about the Muslim women in history who were examples of feminism, starting with the prophet's wife, who was a successful businesswoman, and his daughter, who was not only a religious scholar, but who led an army. So actually, Mark, I didn't realize that anybody thought Islam was sexist until I got to law school. <laughs> and then people told me it was. <laughs> So one of the things that I tell people, and they're always shocked, is that 13 Muslim women have been presidents and prime ministers in recent decades. 
I mean, it's wonderful that we're celebrating that we have a, a woman vice president, but we've never had a woman president in this country. And yet there have been 13 Muslim women who have been presidents or prime ministers governing Muslim populations. That means they were elected by Muslim men. Like, can, we, can we think about this? There are 18 countries that have more women in their legislatures than the U.S. does. In Iran, there are more women than men in the universities. I think that's true in the Gulf as well. So that brings me to another point is often when people are talking about Muslim women, what I say is, why are you comparing American women with Muslim women over there, overseas, abroad? If you want to solve for the religion and see what the religion says, then why not compare apples to apples? Why not compare American Muslim women with American non-Muslim women, right? That would be more consistent. Because if you're if you're comparing women here who are not Muslim with Saudi women, then you're comparing apples and oranges. You're not taking into account culture and patriarchy and poverty and socioeconomic status. But if you compare Muslim American women with non-Muslim American women, then you get a much more exact picture. And when you do that, you find that Muslim American women are doing very well. They're actually the second most educated faith group in the United States, just after Jewish American women. Muslim American women have the most parity of income with men in their faith group. So that means that Muslim men and Muslim women in America have about the same level of income, whereas that's not true in other faith groups. Women are much lower in income in other faith groups than men. So that should tell you that it's not Islam that's holding Muslim women back, right? I think just two years ago, there was a study that came out that showed that the biggest obstacle that women have in the world to advancement is poverty. They looked at other factors like religion and culture, and they found that those actually were not that influential. The most influential obstacle was poverty. The more poverty, the fewer opportunities for women. And this was true in all countries. There's a lot more detail on that, folks, in the book, Demystifying Sharia by Sumbul Ali Karamali. I really do think if you read this book, your eyes will be opened. Uh, again, most of what we have seen about Muslims in the United States has come through a group with a very vested interest, and they're not letting in the light that we should be letting in. There's still a complexity here that I don't know where I come down on. I mean, I did read the whole book, and my mind has been opened about a whole lot of things that I had almost no knowledge about before, and which I feel a greater love and connection happening because of the book. Part of the problem is when we're considering over time and in different cultures, different governmental structures as well, it's hard to know what to compare to what. One of the things that you said was the cases of sexual immorality. You know, have you had sex outside of marriage and can we therefore convict you? And then what can we do about that? It's remarkable from the point of view of someone who's been told by a certainly a vengeful media in the United States that Muslims are going to come and kill everybody who's having sex outside of marriage. <laughs> How few cases where that's happening. I mean, that in fact, historically, that's not true anywhere in the world that that's happened much. It's much more common in the United States. I think people were thrown into prison or killed or whatever 
for a black and a white having sex in the United States or, or whatever. I mean, if you actually compare historically, the U.S. doesn't come off near as well as most Islamic countries. And part of what you explain, which this really blew my mind, and I, I still wonder how you could ever practice as a, a lawyer, if such things exist, in Sharia, because you have all of the reasons that you have to let someone off. And as a matter of fact, there's you have to have an effort to let them off, and you have to have four eyewitnesses to anyone having sex immorally, and you can't confess to it. I mean, you've blown my mind. Okay, right? <laughs> uh-huh. Lay out a little bit of that because I don't have all of it settled in my mind. But And tell me, does this really apply the world round historically? How much of the situation does it apply to? You say this is what Sharia says, but does that mean that that's what Sharia says in Saudi Arabia? Does that, is that Sharia in 18th century? Spell it out. So I just have to say you've asked about 55 different questions. Right, <laughs> right. So we're going to be on this call for another 97 minutes right now. Yeah, at least maybe days. You asked me about punishments. This is something that we hear about a lot in the media because it is sensational. Of course, the media, if it bleeds, it leads, right? And these things are riveting, you know, to hear about. It's awful. I mean, even, and they're in our culture too. You know, I talk about Aladdin and Aladdin totally praise. I mean, it's based on a lot of these stereotypes that Disney's Aladdin, the original one, especially, you know, one of the first things you see is Princess Jasmine, you know, picks up an apple and the guy is ready to cut off her hand for theft. And that is not what Islamic law is about. So these punishments originate in the seventh century in the Quran, but there are only four of them that are specified with their punishments. So as one scholar says, it's not remarkable that there are corporal punishments in the Quran. What's remarkable is that there are only four of them, given that this was the seventh century. At that time, everybody had punishments like this. Even 200 years ago, the English had the death penalty for over 200 crimes, even petty theft. So draconian harsh punishments were very common even 200 years ago, but certainly 1400 years ago. Stoning was very common in the 7th century, not only in Jewish law, but also in Roman law. It was a part of the cultural landscape. And it was a deterrent. Harsh punishments were deterrents because there were no police forces. So there was no real way to enforce compliance with the law. And so the punishments were harsh to deter people from ever committing crimes in the first place. For adultery, for example, illicit sex is the crime in the Quran. In the Quran, the punishment is actually not stoning, it's flogging. But stoning came into Islamic law, into the fiqh. Not sure where it came from. Possibly it came from Judaic law. The stoning is not in the Quran, it's in the fiqh. Even so, historically speaking, very, very seldom was anybody actually executed for adultery. If they were convicted, it was usually flogging or some other punishment. To give you an example, in the almost 600 years of the Ottoman Empire, only one person was executed for adultery. And even that was a political situation. One person in 600 years. So when the Saudis actually executed somebody for adultery in the early 20th century, there was shock throughout the Muslim world because these punishments had been in abeyance for centuries. In Syria, nobody had executed anybody for adultery for almost a thousand years. So it was ridiculous. It was amazing and shocking that the Saudis started doing this. The Saudis are an extremist sect of Islam, a fairly new extremist sect of Islam, by the way. 
so you were asking about actually Islamic law concerning adultery. Yes, it is a crime, but to convict anyone, a man or a woman, it's not just women, for illicit sex in Islam, you have to produce four eyewitnesses to the act of intercourse itself. And it's not enough to see like two people in bed under the covers. You have to see everything. <laughs> four eyewitnesses. Not only that, you have to prove that each of the eyewitnesses were trustworthy. In addition, all of the eyewitnesses, their testimony has to be exactly the same. And if it's not, then they can be prosecuted for false accusation. In addition, even if you do get four eyewitnesses to the act of intercourse itself, the accused has all kinds of defenses. He or she can claim mistake, like, oh, I thought it was my spouse. Or they can claim uh, duress. <laughs> they can claim duress, like, oh, I was raped. It was actually very common for women to say they had been drugged through their food and they didn't know what they were doing. You could say it didn't have capacity. You know, it was somebody who was underage or, or not in their right minds. If by some cosmic convergence, you could find four eyewitnesses and none of the defenses applied, the court could still set aside the punishment for all kinds of reasons. Repentance was usually enough to set aside the penalty. If you said you were sorry, the court could set aside the punishment. Even if that didn't happen, there were all kinds of ways that the court could set aside the punishment. And this was because the Prophet Muhammad said that if you could let someone off, then it was better to forgive than to punish them. So the courts took that seriously, and they came up with all sorts of reasons to let someone off. For example, in Islamic law, to convict someone, you need 100% certainty. That means there could be 0% doubt. Now, in our American system, in civil cases, you only need 51% certainty more likely than not. In our criminal cases, you only need it to be beyond a reasonable doubt. So people could say all kinds of things to introduce doubt and the court would accept it. My favorite story is one that Professor Jonathan Brown talks about where he says a woman who was widowed got pregnant. There was a trial because for illicit sex. And she said, no, she said her husband who had died came back to her in spirit every Friday and lay with her and that's how she got pregnant. And the court said, okay. <laughs> so it was, it was a very, I mean, when the British came to India, they actually deplored Islamic law because they said it was too soft. It was not harsh enough on criminals because of this kind of philosophy. It wasn't a black and white law. The, the purpose was to preserve society, deter people from crime, but not necessarily execute these harsh punishments. I had my own questions when I read in the book, again, the book, Demystifying Sharia, when I read that thing about reasonable doubt, and you said in Sharia, the rule is 100%. You have to be 100% sure, 0% doubt. That phrase, you know, beyond a reasonable doubt, a reasonable doubt versus an unreasonable doubt. Would we want people to get off because of an unreasonable doubt? I'm not sure if the standard is supposed to be different at all. But I guess historically, the statistics that you point out say They've gone to greater lengths to not prosecute people. There's something else that you mentioned. There's a requirement that you search as hard as you can to give a person an out. What's the phrase for that? It's basically ward off the hudud. And that's a legal maxim. It was said by the prophet, but it was accepted as a legal maxim in Sharia, which is ward off the hudud from the Muslims as much as you all can. And if you find a way out for the person, then let them go. For it is better for the authority to err in mercy than to err in punishment. 
So that is a legal maxim. And we're, we're talking, by the way, not all Sharia, we're talking about criminal cases. So offenses, these are the hudud, the harsh punishments. For example, theft. Yes, in some kinds of theft, amputation was a punishment because the Quran says cut off their hands. But the Quran, it's open to interpretation. It may not mean literally cut off. It may actually mean stop them from thieving because the word for cut can mean cut as in cut off a conversation or cut them off from committing an act. But, you know, even if it means amputation, it was only for certain kinds of theft. And again, the limitations were so ridiculous that it, for example, it had to be surreptitious, but you needed two eyewitnesses. So how could it be surreptitious? And yet there were still two eyewitnesses. Or the thief could just say, well, I, I had an ownership interest in it. And then there would be enough doubt that the amputation wouldn't apply. Moreover, there are cases where the caliph you know, someone would be brought in front of the ruler and the ruler would say, did you steal this? Say no. So because they didn't want people to confess. And even then, there were so many limitations that it almost never was applied. It was usually so in criminal cases of adultery or theft, theft in particular, if it was very likely that this person had stolen something, there were lots of remedies. The person could just give the property back and then it would be fine. If there was doubt, they wouldn't apply the harsh punishment, but they still might apply a lesser punishment. Like if it was really likely that they stole something, but there was like 95% certainty and not 100% certainty, then it wouldn't be the harsh punishment, but they still might flog them. The lashings were a very common punishment in medieval times. Who does the enforcement? This seems to be a key issue for me, particularly since you described that there's so many different schools and, you know, it's, it's like, you know, I like their opinion about whether it's good or bad, like I can get divorced. When it comes to hudud type offenses, is this religious people who are enforcing it? Is it governmental who's not religious courts? So there's a difference between what's happening in modern times and what's happening in, what was happening in historical times. So historically, people would be brought in front of the qadi, the judge, and the judge would make the decision. What's happening in modern times is a travesty. What people hear about now is, you know, somebody in Iran who has been who's been convicted for illicit sex or someone in Saudi Arabia who's been executed for adultery or or had a hand chopped off. So that's what we hear about a lot. These are appalling travesties of justice. Sharia was not meant to be applied this way. Nearly all Islamic scholars agree that where these punishments are applied, it is always wrongly applied. They're applied without the limitations that were supposed to be applied as well. Given how impossible it is to actually achieve 100% certainty with all the limitations we just talked about, it's amazing to me that, Saud, that anybody could execute anybody ever for adultery. And yet you hear about these things happening. Unfortunately, what is happening is that, well, first of all, it's not widespread. Most Muslim-majority countries do not allow these punishments, do not allow execution for adultery, for example, execution for a theft. But the ones that do apply them wrongly because they don't apply all these limitations as well. And they apply them because it gives them power. It legitimizes them as religious, unquote. You know, a lot of these countries have authoritarian rulers or dictators, and they're not legitimately elected governments. And harsh punishments are a way to cow their populations and to kind of frighten them into submissiveness. It gives them legitimacy because they can tout themselves as Islamic. And most people, you know, don't know what the rules of Islam are, just as most Christians don't know what ninth century canon law says, you know? I mean, you didn't memorize that when you went through law school? <laughs> <laughs> 
Goodness. So that's the problem. You know, there's a lot of lack of education. And that is also actually a result of colonialism, because when Judaism and Christianity modernized in response to the Industrial Revolution in the 19th century, Islam was not able to modernize because almost 90% of Muslim lands were subjugated. And what that meant was that legal institutions had been dismantled or had fallen away. So there was nobody to really modernize and educate under colonialism. Muslim majority countries have only been independent since the mid 20th century. I sometimes think imagine all of Europe had been colonized by Muslims for a century or two and had just become independent in the last century. What would Europe look like? Only one of many hundreds of wonderful questions that we brought to mind if you read Demystifying Sharia, what it is, how it works, and why it's not taking over our country. I really do wish, Sumbula, that I had the time to talk to you in greater depth. There are some things that I think I disagree with you about, but I think in a good Islamic and I think Sharia format, we would talk about them and we'd work towards the truth. We'd work towards that ultimate source. It would not be an imposition of one opinion over another. And I think that people's eyes will be opened up to this likelihood, possibility and historical trend that is part of Sharia if they read Demystifying Sharia. And folks, you should know that we've been talking for quite a while now, Sumul and I, and I haven't been able to include all of it in our broadcast. So if you want to hear the other tidbits, please come to northernspiritradio.org and look for our bonus excerpts. We'll excerpt the pieces that we couldn't fit into the broadcast, but even more so, just read Demystifying Sharia and then reach out because Sumbul is a rich source of information and she's happy to have the conversation. I think you'll be richer if you do talk to her and do benefit from her learnings. Again, she's got three books. This is only the most recent. There's a wealth of information that she's drawing on and she does a wonderful job. I, and I have to thank you for doing that today, conveying it to people so that we can understand in real life what Sharia life within is. Islam, what a life of a Muslim in America is like. All of those things are valuable, eye-opening experiences for so many people. And I appreciate you taking all this time today to talk to us today for Spirit in Action. Well, thank you so much for having me. It was an honor and I truly enjoyed talking to you. I appreciate it. Remember, you can find by going to a website, muslimnextdoor.com is where you'll find more of the information, the books and speaking opportunities, uh, places where you can possibly even hear Sumbul Ali Karamali and join us next week for Spirit in Action. The theme music for this program is Turning of the World, performed by Sarah Thompson. Check out all things Spirit in Action on northernspiritradio.org. Guests, links, stations, and a place for your feedback, suggestions, and support. Thanks for listening. I'm Mark Helpsmeet, and I hope you find deep roots to support you to grow steadily toward the light. This is Spirit in Action. With every voice, with every song, we will move this world along, and our lives will feel the echo.